0: We read to you from Acts 17 in your bulletin there. <clears throat> While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this bla- this babbler trying to say of his remark? He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said that this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenian and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. <laughs> Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, "'Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I, as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, "'To an unknown God.'" Now, what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth.'" and does not live in temples built by hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives men all men life and breath and everything else for one man he made every from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined this time set for them and the exact places where they would live god did this so that men would see him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being as some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offsprings, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all peoples everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resin of the wreck, Resurrection of the dead. Some of them sneered, but others said, "We want to hear you again on this subject." At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. And my name is Omari Hill, and uh, as you've heard, I'm one of the ruling elders here at Christ Central Church. Um, Thank you. Thank you, um, first of all, to uh, Pastor Howard, um, also to Pastor Giorgio for allowing me this opportunity. Thank you to the session, the rest of the elders of our church. And thank you to all of you for praying for us and giving us words of encouragement, especially as we get closer uh, to the end of graduating from seminary, which I can't wait. As we continue our sermon series in the kingdom of God, first we heard from Pastor Giorgio, and he talked about the word of God. And we heard from David Speakman the other week, and he talked about God's mission and our mission. And today becomes the topic of worship. That is, how should we respond to God? And what exactly does the coming of Jesus have to do with that? If you notice, our text for this morning is Acts chapter 17. And I know for some of you that, um, Acts chapter 17 is that, that great chapter that helps you to think about Christ and culture. A lot of us love it. Because that means as Christians we get to watch rated R movies. Isn't that wonderful? And for me it also means I get to read Harry Potter, so I like it. But for other people when you think about Christ and culture, it's, it, do, it doesn't make you feel so comfortable because you, you, you're tired of the mixing of religion and politics. You're, or you're also tired of how religion is represented in politics. But we're not gonna talk about that today. We're not gonna talk about Paul's methods of mission and evangelism, but we're gonna focus in on his message. That discussion about Christ and culture is very important, but that's not where we'll be today. What we'll look at is what Paul said when he actually entered the city of Athens. Well, first of all, he wasn't intending to go there. Paul was driven there. Paul was driven to Athens by racism and political pressure. Those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, who have read it some, know that when Paul, has ever, when Paul went on his missionary journeys and went to different cities outside of his, of, his, of his homeland to preach Jesus, that he first went to the synagogues. Paul went to his own people first. Paul was always preaching to his people before going to anyone else. So what happened to Paul? Well, he was preaching in a city in northern Greece. that was called Thessalonica. And as he was there and talking about how Jesus had come and the promises that he brings is not only for Jews, but for all people, that church, that group of people began to look a little funky. It, it started turning to a, a Christ central, if you will, there was some strange music, a lot of strange people starting to mix in there. And, and so the the Jews that were there, not all the Jews, but the Jews who were, not, who were non-believers, looked at all this and they became jealous. And they got tired of what, what was happening to the church. You know, this isn't looking like what we're used to. These people are coming in with these strange customs and you know they're worshiping God in, in different ways that we're not used to and they're bringing in their cultural baggage and their heritage and we don't like this. And so what they began to do is they began to talk to the authorities. And they told the authorities that, look, this Paul guy and this Silas guy, too, they're telling the people of this town that there's a greater king, that there's somebody greater than the Caesar, somebody greater than the Roman emperor. There's a king that ought to be worshiped, that ought to be venerated even more than the emperor himself. And so then what happened? The authorities came after Paul and Silas, and so they had to leave, they had to flee. And every other town that Paul and Silas went to in northern Greece, they were chased, literally chased by these group of people, these unbelievers who would come after them and come to each town. And after Paul and Silas had done some preaching, these people would say, oh, look, 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 these are these people who are appointing us, who are trying to pull us away from the Caesar. They're trying to bring down the government. And so Paul and Silas had to flee once more. So Paul eventually comes to Athens Picture it. Paul is there in Athens. Athens is that great eclectic city. People of all types of personalities and backgrounds are accepted there. I don't know if you can picture it. Some of you have been to Athens. I haven't, but I've seen some of the pictures. And the pictures tell me that although many of the classical structures are in ruins, the city itself still retains some of its romance and its glory. During the time of Paul, the leaders of the Roman Empire still admired Athens. After all, this was the great city of Pericles and Plato. This was the birthplace of democracy. This is a place where many great things that we treasure in our Western civilization were born. But anyway, Paul's there. He's looking around. He's noticing these gigantic pieces of art. And architecture, hewn with incredible detail and and glory, and so much care. And I I don't know if you've ever listened to, if you've ever been listening to like your favorite CD, you know, and it's playing. You got it in your car or something like that, and you know, it's your song. You know, I like this. This is good, and you're, you're captured by it. The rhythms are going, and man, your head's bobbing and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, it skips. There's distortion. And, you know, just you hate it. Ah, and you keep pressing the buttons and stuff. You know, it's not working. You know, and so finally you get frustrated and you just throw the CD out and you're like, oh, well, it's all scratched up. Well, this is kind of like what happens to Paul. The Bible says that as Paul was taking in the sights, he saw something that the word here is provoked. It provoked his soul. He was deeply distressed. The idea here is being sort of angry and sad at the same time. Paul noticed that this wonderful, cosmopolitan mecca of Athens, that when beheld by human eyes should make you turn to the creator and want to worship him, was actually full of idols. And it hurt him to his heart. So much so that he began to pursue dialogue with the religious leaders among the Jews and the Greeks. And he began to tell them that the times of ignorance, the times of ignoring God, it's over. The true and living God is calling all men everywhere to repent. But but why? Why should, why should any of us take notice of God in a growing metroplex like Charlotte? Our lives are so busy. We have so many things on our plate, and all of these things are, are not bad. We're, we're trying to pay our bills. We're trying to raise our children. We're trying to improve our neighborhoods. We're trying to write sermons and lead community groups. Who has time for pursuing God when we have so much to do in the city? Maybe all the ancient ways have not disappeared. The scriptures say in verse 21, if you look at that again, it says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Sounds like what some of us might think of religion. All the God talk is just really a good hobby. It's something you do if you have the time to do it. In the end, it's just a competition of ideas, and who really has time to engage in things like that, except maybe the middle class or the elite? Pursuing God is something for people who like NPR and Fox News. The truth is, we all worship someone or something. We all give our ultimate allegiance to someone. If that someone is not our creator, then who is it? How is it that God became just a table talk topic to help us look smart? How is it that God became a feel-good tactic to help us get our praise on and fight our depression? How is it that God became just a bunch of poker chips that we could cash in on whenever we get into a tight spot? Yes, we still live in a culture where God is treated as just a superstition. Or even worse, irrelevant. Paul speaks to the Athenians here in the text and he speaks to us today and he says, repent. It's time to change your course. It's time to change the way you think about God. Why? Because our ignorance of God has some real consequences. So Paul proclaims these three things. God is our creator. God is our judge. And God has raised a man from the dead. If you've used Facebook before, you know that you can upload your photos and uh, put it on your Facebook page and then allow all of these people who are on your friends list to see it. And um, one day I was on Facebook and uh, John and Cindy, your daughter, Shannon, put a picture of the Metropolitan Museum of Art on her Facebook page. And I was looking at it and I was like, wow, okay, this is incredible. I was—I had been there a couple of times myself, so I was taken there. I was taken back. You know how you just look at a picture and you're just taken there, especially if you've been to that place. And I'm thinking, you know, wow, look at this incredible architecture, the sheer grandeur and the the, the beauty of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and not just the the pieces of art that are on the wall, but um, the, the architecture itself is breathtaking. And not only that. Um, but the met is a place where my wife and i used to go on a lot of dates together so you know it has this sort of feeling of romance for me so here i am looking at this picture and, and you know feeling like all these these feelings of incredible romance and um you know i'm being taken there i'm sort of dreaming and, and it's great and so i posted my reaction um to this picture on um shannon's uh facebook page and this is how she responded she said She wasn't surprised that this happened because art is a connection to God. Because God is the artist who made us and everything in the world. You guys have a little theologian. (laughs) She's exactly right. You look here at the text, listen to it. Verse 24, it says, the God who made the world and everything in it, Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God has ultimate authority over the whole universe and he has everything he needs within himself. God is not homeless. He doesn't need us to build him a shack. God doesn't need an extreme home makeover. God doesn't need a soup kitchen. He's not telling us to hurry up and make his dinner. God doesn't need anything. He's the one who gives us life and breath and everything that we need to exist. Without God, we die. Without God, there is no love, no beauty, no Good food, no health, no good friendships. It's funny how we can spend so much time consuming television programs and magazines and websites that talk about all these things. When God is constantly providing these connections to himself in the world around us. Here's the truth. God is personal. And we can really know him. I should say that again. Our God is personal, and we can really know him. Paul quotes the Greek poets, and he says here in verse 28, In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. If God sustains us and makes us the people that we are, if God made us into people that can carry meals to each other when a baby is born, or whisper words of comfort to someone after he's had surgery, then surely our maker can have a personal and caring relationship with us. In fact, Paul is saying, God intentionally wants us to know him. Look at this. Look back in the text. It says that, and he made from one man every nation of mankind, To live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God not only keeps us breathing as individuals, but he determines the history and the natural resources for whole nations and empires. For what purpose? Here it is. That they should seek God in the hope that they might feel or grope their way toward him and find him. God intends for us to seek him and to make him our highest passion. We can actually know our creator in the here and the now. But be careful, Paul says, this isn't a take it or leave it kind of thing. God is our judge. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. But there's that R word, that R word again. It makes us very uncomfortable, that word repent. It sounds so harsh because we've known so many ministers and Christian leaders, so-called people who are called by God that have abused us and have tried to set up their own kingdoms just by using this word repent. But I want you to know today that God's call to repentance is one of the kindest things that he could ever do for us. Repentance, biblically, I say biblically, simply means turning from whatever competes for God's place to God himself. I'll say that again. Repentance, in the biblical sense, simply means turning from whatever competes for God to God himself. How should we understand this as God's kindness? We simply need to take notice of who we are. Being then God's children, Paul says, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Here's the question. If God really is just gold or silver or stone, then what does that make us? Think about it. Sure, we don't have golden statues in our front lawns. We don't have neighborhood oracles who are babbling false prophecies at the coffee shop, right? Although a lot of people are just babbling things at the coffee shop, <laughs> but we don't have any oracles. But don't we treat each other like, like currency? Like little building blocks to make our own personal kingdoms? Don't we shape and refine each other into idols dumb things that we can control who has been dumbed down because you give them whatever they want as long as they make you feel needed and beautiful who has been dumbed down because you refuse to release them from any similarities they may have to someone who has really hurt you who has been dumbed down because you want them to act perfect and happy so that you won't feel so inadequate and powerless. We try to have divine control over our worlds, and we dehumanize others and ourselves in the process. It completely dishonors God. And our infinite, personal, and glorious creator looks at the corruption of his creation, and he says, I will not be ignored. As long as we keep looking to idols for dignity and redemption... We will keep longing for the next thing, like the ancient Athenians did. The brokenness in our relationships and our very souls keeps us running. I mean, we want so bad, so bad to be be loved, to be known, to be cherished. We keep looking for the next thing. Like the artist John Mayer said, something's missing, and I don't know how to fix it. The next addition to the house, the next sexual partner, The next message on my Facebook account, the next political update, the next book on spirituality, the next football game, the next earth shattering, knock them down, help me forget all my problems, worship experience. The next, the next, the next, and the next. If God is so easy to find, then why can't we just find him? Why can't we stop running? Forgive me if you've heard me use this illustration before, but I, I can't help but apply it here because it seems to have so much connection. But one of my favorite movies is Forrest Gump. And if you remember, you know, Forrest's, you know, his ability was to be able to run. He could run really fast. And he didn't have very many other abilities, but he could run. And uh, But he wasn't the only one running in this movie. If you recall, his best friend Jenny ran a lot too. She or She ran away from home because... Her father abused her. And everywhere that Forrest would go throughout his life, if you remember, he would meet Jenny. And he would always ask her this one question, Jenny, why can't you just go home? Why can't we just go home? Why can't we just go back to our creator? We spend all our time hearing and searching for something new when God is always near us And meanwhile, our hearts never seem to be satisfied with the God who made us. The God who is our home is calling us. Paul says that even though we know God is our creator and our judge, we simply ignore him. There's too much shame, too much inadequacy. Too much neediness, too much bitterness, too many idols we have hidden in our lives. Our chief passion is not God, but God says he will no longer be ignored. There is a day in which he will judge the entire world regarding righteousness, and that day has been made certain. But there's good news. God raised a man from the dead. But you may be asking yourself, how is that good news? I mean, doesn't Paul say that this man that God raised from the dead would be the judge of the entire world? Yes, but this man is none other than Jesus. Well, how do I know that? I mean, you just look earlier in the text and you see that Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection to the people of Athens. God has made Jesus the judge of the living and the dead, but you can't just stop there. You have to keep digging further into the text. You have to ask The right questions. Why was he raised from the dead? Well, obviously because he died. But why did he die? The scriptures say he was crucified for our idolatry, our self-worship, our ignorance, our unbelief. The death of Jesus makes the removal of guilt and shame possible. To those who trust in him, we have... Forgiveness of sins. We can stand before the God who is our judge, exposed and unashamed. But that's not all. It's not just about getting your name written in the roll call for heaven, right? I mean, it's not like we just cash in on the the Jesus check, if you will. And then we just sit around and kind of figure out how we're going to do life together. But Paul puts it like this. In the book of Romans, he says, for the death, Jesus died. He died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus tells us that our creator never intended for us to just be forgiven. But he actually wants us to walk with him without shame and without condemnation. Not only now, but throughout all eternity. In the kingdom of God, this is the essence of worship that we would actually get to live with God. Learn how to glorify him and be transformed by his glory, both in our souls and in our bodies. God appointed a man who not only takes away our shame, but gives us our dignity. One of my other favorite movies, I have a lot of them. Uh, One of my other favorite movies, and uh, some of you may not remember this, is uh, Clash of the Titans. Anybody know Clash of the Titans? All right. Some of you may be too young to remember that one. But... uh, you know, this in this movie, there's this huge scene at the end where you know Perseus is flying on Pegasus, and uh, you know I think it's Hera who tells Poseidon to release the Kraken, you know, and the, you know the Kraken comes out, and you know Perseus has got to fight the Kraken, and you know people love this scene, but one of my favorite scenes actually precedes that. Um, actually, something that happens in that scene helps him defeat the Kraken. In this scene, Perseus goes against Medusa. If you remember Medusa. That she's this, this gargan, right? Half woman, half snake. And, you know, her hair, she's got all these snakes going. And, you know, she's pretty mean with a bow and arrow, right? You don't want to get in front of her because she'll catch you with it. But that's not really what you want to stay away from. What you really don't want to do with Medusa is to look in her face. Anybody who beholds her glory gets turned to stone. So Perseus' whole thing is to avoid looking into the face of Medusa so that he can live. But here's the promise of Christ. If we would pursue God now through his judge, if we would behold God in his glory and pursue him face to face, we will actually become more like children made in his image. God will not make us into dust But we will actually get to walk with life himself. And this is eternal life, Jesus said, that we may know the only true God and Jesus Christ who he has sent. Jesus will never condemn those who trust in him because they will always share his life. And that life brings newness and hope. I know that because that life has been among us. That life has transformed many of you. I've heard some of your stories. You've tasted the resurrected king. I know it's true that some of you could say, my father neglected me and still barely knows who I am. But now the Lord is using me to nurture children that are not even my own. Look at God. I was mad at the world because no one would take me in as I am. But now the Lord is using me to give people courage. Look at God. I've struggled with forms of sexual addiction for so many years. But now the Lord is helping me to raise a daughter. Look at God. I still struggle with the way that I eat and treat my own body, but now the Lord is using my hands and feet to help rebuild other people's lives. Look at God. I've wanted to take my own life. Many times I've been very close to losing my mind, but now the Lord is using me to serve people who actually care whether I live or die. Look at God. Look at God. Let Christ rise among us. Let there be no more shame, no more running, no more useless knowledge, no more isolation, no more dumb idols, no more ignorance. Lord, take our lives. Lord, give us Jesus. True worship, true worship in the kingdom of God transforms our lives. Through Jesus Christ. True worship transforms the world and it can only come through repentance in Jesus. How incredible would it be if all things in this world would simply give God the glory. Will we be the kind of community that beholds the true face of God through Jesus and becomes transformed after his image? Will we be that kind of community whose hearts are reformed our religion and provokes us like Paul to go and invite other people in will people be able to look at the change among us and say look at God can I come in can I be changed too worship Jesus and receive life listen to his word follow him Love him above all else and be transformed by his love and give God the glory. Hallelujah.